everyone. Welcome to episode 132 of Manage the Wild. I'm Nick Madsen. Yesterday, we started going over the book Ecology and Management of Blacktail and Mule Deer of North America. And super good book, really interesting. It was recommended to me by um, Toby Boudreaux of Idaho Fishing Game. And he said that I should read it if I was interested in mule deer management and conservation, which I am. So as we go through this book, I've already learned a couple of things. One, it's important to understand where animals came from, to know how they have evolved. And if we want to manage them in the future, we're going to have to find ways to create areas that are similar to how they evolved. Because if we change and alter their landscape too quickly, then they won't be able to adapt, and that just creates a lot of problems. So we started looking into the origins of mule deer. Where did they come from? And first we looked at uh, dispersal theory, that mule deer broke away from blacktail, moved into areas, and there was a lack of predators, an increase in nutrition that led to body change, larger body, uh, some adaptations, ears, larger ears, as well as antler structure. And it uh, has some holes. Genetically testing that they, che they checked the mitochondrial DNA and it actually was more closely related to white-tailed deer than, than mule deer are to black-tailed deer. And so that created some problems. So they come up with the origin, hybrid origin theory in the early 90s to possibly explain. And the reason why they're looking at the cross between a blacktail and a whitetail is because the mitochondrial DNA for both of those is distinct. And the, M, the mitochondrial DNA for mule deer is closely linked to whitetail. So that's why they're always looking at the two differences between whitetail and blacktail and not whitetail and mule deer because whitetail and mule deer are closely linked and blacktail are not. So they went with this hybrid theory and for the mitochondrial DNA to line up it had to be a whitetail female mating with a blacktail male so they could keep the mitochondrial DNA and once they did that then we have the mule deer species. There are some uh, there are plenty of instances where hybridization is happening. Researchers have been monitoring it, following it, seeing how it works. They've also been conducting studies. In this chapter, they talk about one that was done in Texas where they looked at over 300 whitetail to see which ones had mated with mule deer and created hybrids. Of the four, uh, 300 deer, 5.6% of those were hybrids. There's also been studies looking at blacktail and mule deer because they cross over and they have created hybrids as well. There is a study where the animals were put in captivity and they were blacktail and whitetail and they were they reproduced. The problem that the researchers found out is survivability of the hybrids, the fawns is super low, incredibly low. It's really difficult for those to cross that crossover to happen. There's just there's a lot of things, a lot of problems that are created when a blacktail 
and a whitetail mate. There's, it just is not very conducive because they're not that closely related. So they were successful though because they did have some hybrid offspring. And the hybrid offspring, when they were sexually ready to reproduce the first year, zero of them produced any offspring. They just couldn't do it. The second year, 50% of those hybrids were able to produce offspring. But of the offspring that they had, the fawns they dropped, 66% of those were born stillborn. So again, it's very difficult. Survivability is low for the off, for uh, the fawns that are born. And once they do, sexual reproduction is very difficult for them. In this case, they had all the food, all the water, and there was no predators, and it was still extremely low. The other thing that researchers started noticing is that their behavior was was off and they started to notice that they combined traits of both the mother and the father and they seemed confused in certain incidences when presented with predator avoidance they would actually employ a mixture of both and so which would overall reduce the success rate of the individual trying to avoid predators because they can't figure out whether they should run or jump. They try to do both and then they just get caught. Now it's still, this theory still can work because of the fact that when the glaciers receded and all the animals, a lot of the predators were lost through extinction, that there was a reduction in predators. So some of these behaviors that we think wouldn't be effective today because they would be confused, maybe were not as great of an issue. But again, it comes back to genetic DNA. Now, this time, instead of looking at the mitochondrial, the MT DNA, they decide to look at the nucleus DNA. And what that is, is that is showing the physical characteristics that you have today. So if the father was a black tail and the mother is a white tail, both characteristics should present themselves in some form or fashion. And it's just, they just don't look alike. There is no mule deer out there looking like a white tail. There's, there's just, it's just not being presented well enough. And in fact, they, they're just not seeing it. And so when you look at the DNA and they're going through those, you're just not seeing that mule deer connection to the whitetail. And in fact, mule deer and blacktail have higher success rates because they're more closely linked because they're uh, subspecies. And so the hybrid theory has, again, some challenges that they're having a difficult time overcoming. So the last one we're gonna talk about is glacial refugia theory. And I like this one best of all, because it seems more plausible. The theory is in this one, if I understand correctly from this book, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that all three species were here in North America at the time of the last glacial advance. As the glaciers advanced southward, it pushed these three different distinct species into different areas. It pushed the whitetail down into the Florida area. It pushed the mule deer down into the Southwest and down into Mexico. And it trapped blacktail in the Cascades or along that coast, Washington, 
Oregon area. And as it started to recede, some of the last places to recede were the blacktail, where the blacktail remained trapped. And so you had uh, a lot of mixing going on between mule deer and white-tailed deer. And they, uh, this happened, the last one happened roughly 26,000 years ago, the Pleistocene. And between 26,000 and 19,000 years ago. And there's been a whole host of events. It could have been before this, as this chapter talked about, but it's one that seems to me more plausible. Now, again, it comes back to the genetic DNA. Why is the mitochondrial DNA different from blacktail versus that of whitetail and mule deer? And here's the, there's a couple of things they talk about in this chapter, which is super interesting, is there's a few things that could have happened. You could have had what's called the founder effect. Let's say that blacktail, as the um, glaciers are advancing, you have a small group of blacktail get pushed into an area and they become trapped. And let's say those blacktail, their genetic differences are just a little bit different from the rest of the blacktail. So they're not a very good... Um, representation of the entire population and they start their own population as the others are either wiped out or pushed out and they become trapped and they reproduce and they're very successful and then you start to lose some of those genetic differences that you would have found in the original mitochondrial dna then you could have uh, what's called the genetic drift as they reproduce over and over and their small, small isolated populations, basically they over time start to lose a few things. And what I mean by this is let's say you place a thousand blue beads into a, a bottle and you place a hundred red beads into a bottle. Every time you reach into that bottle, you're going to pull out a different sample. And that's kind of how genetic drift works because you're pulling out not the entire amount out of the bottle. You're just pulling a handful. So you're getting a different representation than what the overall thing is. And so they, as they reproduce, they start to lose different things because they're not adding anything new. And so they're creating that genetic drift. There's challenges with all of these theories, and there is a good possibility that it could be one of them. There's a good possibility it could be none of them, or there's a possibility that it could be all three of them. That's why all three things arise, is because there could be a possibility that there's a mixture of all three. The one thing they do know, the researchers do know for sure, is it all started with otocoilus, and it moved from there. And how it got to where mule deer are today, there's a lot of theories, but there's a lot of holes in those theories as well. So the one thing that I know is studying wildlife is challenging. Studying wildlife with virtually no information makes it even harder. All right, you guys, have a great day. Stay wild.